Mount, preached by Jesus, Matthew 5 through 7. Um, I encourage you again to read this, study it on your own time. Ask the Lord what he's saying to you um, uh, as you look at it and as you study it, as you read it, and as Jesus is preaching this to his followers, he's preaching it to our hearts and to ask the Lord, Lord, what would you say to me? What are you speaking to me? What was the message that Jesus wanted to convey to his followers and ultimately to us as his followers here and now? Because the word of God, it stretches um, across time and uh, what was good for his followers and the disciples right then as he was preaching that message, it is truth and life for us as well. But again, he, um, just to kind of give you a, a, just a, just a breakdown of where we've been, he started out the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount kind of as a foundation to where he would be going. He begins with Beatitudes. These are attitudes in which we are to live by to gain true eternal happiness and so he's, he's kind of laying the foundation in which he's going to build, in which he's going to say, here's where I'm going. I want you to get these first, to understand how, that, that my, my plan for you is to live truly, eternally happy, out, uh, regardless of outward conditions and circumstances. So he gives us the Beatitudes, then he follows it up, and I already touched in on this a few weeks ago, but he, in, in, in Matthew 5, 13 through, through 16, he's talking about that we are, we, are the, we are salt and we are light. We are the salt of the earth, we are the light of the world. And he's talking about that the world desperately needs the good news of the gospel. And he says that as his followers, he wants us, and we are called to be salt and light upon the earth. And ultimately, Jesus even said this about himself. He said, I am the light of the world. And so when we have him inside us, when we are walking in fellowship with him through the power of the Spirit, we become light to the earth, salt of the earth, light to shine in darkness. And so what I believe he's doing is he gives us the foundations of the Beatitudes that I think help us understand how to be salt and light. When we live it out, the world wants to know what they see in us, because what they see in us is authenticity. And it goes again, just to break those down, is realizing our need of God. And this is just basically what the Beatitudes are. This is how we are to be salt and light. Really realizing our, our need of God. Living lives of repentance. Genuinely meek and humble. Showing mercy to those around us after receiving the mercy of the Father, being pure in heart and having our, our motives be pure before the Lord, walking in peace as peacemakers and bringing peace wherever we go, and then enduring ultimately the end even to the point of persecution. And that is how the foundation of how we are to be salt and light because what we are saying is we are describing who Jesus Christ is. And Peter says, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. Be ready to shine your light when people are looking, when people are searching and they see something in us. And they say, what's different about you? What is it that you have that I don't have? And we will, have an, we will be ready to have an answer for that because it won't be about us. It will be about he that is in us. And so we are called to shine his light. And again, not curse the darkness. We are called to shine the light. Today's text, again, that's just kind of a setup, verses 17 through 48 of Matthew 5. I want to start out with this. I came across this quote this week, and uh, you can go to the next slide. 
I love this, and this is kind of a, a, a great quote to where we will be going today and why Jesus said the things that he said. But Jesus does not belong on the top of your priority list as a task to be completed, but at the center of your entire life, connected to and ruling over everything. Good preacher Mark Driscoll, uh, there was a quote from this past week. I thought that was such a profound statement of why we do what we do, what drives us, what motivates us as we walk with God. Jesus is not a task to be completed, but is he at the center of our lives? And I was, just, I was recently just being very convicted in my own life of, of uh, just kind of what is at the center of my life is Christ. Do I live a Christ-centered life? And if you think about what is in the middle of your life, if you took the, the very core of who you are, and then you have branches of what we do, you know, maybe work or family or, you know, those different things of what we do or maybe the, the things that we enjoy doing, not that those things are wrong, but a lot of times those things can become the core of who we are, and that's a setup for great disappointment. It's when they become the center, they become the core of who we are, and we, we drive you know, our, our life and our, our happiness from that place. The only problem is those places will let us down. Are our lives Christ-centered? Is he at the, in the middle? And, I, and the reason why I say that is, again, because of where we're going and what Jesus said. I'm not going to read the entire text again, but Jesus has given us this foundation of the Beatitudes, his life in us and through us, being salt and light, but then he gives us a contrast. Immediately following, being salt and light, he goes into this contrast of what it is between religious righteousness and true righteousness. That's why I've titled the message, The Quest for True Righteousness. But he gives us this contrast between the two, religious righteousness and true righteousness. Through this sermon... Again, he is ushering in a new kingdom, a new way of thinking, not like the world thinks, because that can so easily trickle into the church and we can think like the world does. He's ushering a new way of thinking, uh, and he's getting to the heart of who we are as his followers. And again, what drives us, what motivates us, and why we do what we do. But he is contrasting what it means to really belong to him versus trying to be more religious or trying to be good enough. And in this, in this whole passage, he is dealing with the religious mindset of the day. You know, the Pharisees, and when you hear people talking about the Pharisees or the, religious, the teachers of religious law, these guys had perfected what it meant to be rule followers, and he was dealing with this idea of the day. But it is also a confrontation of our own religiosity and how we can bleed into being very religious. And being rule followers. And so he tests our hearts. And again, I, I encourage you, I encourage myself, let this test your heart. Let this make you love Jesus more. Because true righteousness is based on the gospel of Jesus. False righteousness is based on religion or moralism. There is a move in our day-to-day -day of, of an exaltation of moralism. It's a self-righteous idea of if you attain to a certain moral code or if you're good enough um, and, and you can reach that kind of moral pinnacle, then you're doing great. And yes, other religions in the world kind of 
master that, and they, or they don't master it, but they're trying to master that, and they're trying to outweigh the good, you know, make the good more than the bad. But it can be also in followers of Jesus where we just become moral. But then the question is, is what is, what is central? What is that central place? What is the focal point of our morality? And that's the test of the heart, and you will see this as we go forward. Before we look at the text, this is uh, from a great preacher, a great modern-day theologian, pastor. His name is Tim Keller, about this contrast of religion, religious, um, religious righteousness versus the gospel. And here's what he says. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion, the motivation is based on fear and insecurity. The gospel, the motivation is based on grateful joy. Religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. The gospel says, I obey God to get God, to delight and resemble him. Isn't that good? Religion says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself, since I believe, like Job's friends, that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. The gospel says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know all my punishment fell on Jesus, and that while he may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. Religion says when I'm criticized, I'm furious or devastated because it is, it is critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. The gospel says this, when I'm criticized, I can take it. I struggle, but it is not critical for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ Jesus. Religion says my prayer life consists largely of petition and only heats up when I'm in the time of need. My main purpose in prayer is control of my environment. The gospel says my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with God. And this idea of prayer or reading the Bible, even why do we do that? What is at the core of when we read scripture or we pray? And a lot of times, even in Christianity, even as followers of Jesus, it can bleed into this thing of, it's what I need to do or I ought to do. And that is religion. The gospel says, I get to be with Christ. I get to talk to him and fellowship with him. Because it's a, a blessing in my life. Religion says, and this is the last one, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. And so I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. Isn't it so interesting that we compare ourselves with others? At least I'm not doing as bad as they are. And so then he says, I disdain and feel superior to the other. The gospel says this, my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies and who was excluded from the city for me. I'm saved by sheer grace, so I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different for me. It's only by grace that I am what I am. I have no inner need to win arguments. The gospel of Jesus. With that in mind, I want us to take a look at Matthew 5, 17 through 20. 
So Jesus gets through with the Beatitudes. He talks about salt and light. Then he says this. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's an important phrase. Everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, and this is the, this is the main thrust of where we are going today, verse 20, it kind of leads into what he says after this. He says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so just because Jesus was bringing in a new kingdom, that did not mean that he was abolishing or getting rid of the law. And you notice what he says there. He says, until all is accomplished, I'm not getting rid of the law. I came to fulfill the law. He's speaking prophetically about the significance of his death and his resurrection. What are the powerful, the, the, the powerful phrase that he said from the cross? And he said, it is finished or paid in full or it is accomplished. And so beforehand, at the beginning of his ministry, he's saying, I did not come to get rid of the law, but I came to fulfill it, and it won't, be fu- it won't be fulfilled until all is accomplished. And then on the cross, he accomplished it because he, he took the punishment of the law. He took the, our punishment, our sin, all of our sin, our past sin, our future sin, our present sin, and he took it all upon himself for us. And he accomplished the law. The Pharisees, listen to this, and, he, and, he's, and he's talking about in verse 20, he talks about, you know, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees identified 613 laws in Old Testament Scripture. 248, were, 248 commands were to do something. 365 were prohibitions or things that, you know, that you could not do. And so they aspired to keep them all. They tried it flawlessly. They tried to, you know, to try to have their, the good outweigh the bad. And this sounds, you know, they, these are followers of the living God. But it sounds like a lot of just religions on the earth is have your good outweigh your bad. And so they were at trying to adhere to 613 laws. Jesus came and he fulfilled all these laws through who he was. That is a part of the good news. And so I'm here today to say this, if you're good and religious, you need to follow all of these 613 laws every day. Good luck with that. Because here's what Jesus said, if you were guilty of breaking even the smallest part of that law, what did he say? You are guilty of the whole thing. So one level of guilt, you blow it. So good luck. You're dismissed. No, I'm just kidding. You're not, it's not over yet. But can you see the overwhelming burden that is? That you just have to be a, a law keeper. Adhering to these laws day by day. Hoping that somehow you won't deviate from the, 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 that, that moral code. And you're, you know, just kind of grin and bear it, kind of muscling through every day. That is not grace. 
And Jesus fulfilled all of those laws. Now, with that said, does this mean that we can live any way we want to because Jesus fulfilled the law? Paul says this in Romans 6.1. He said, should we, should we sin more so that grace could abound more? And he's talking to the Romans because, you know, they love the idea of grace. Grace sounds really wonderful. Grace is a gift. So to get more grace, let's sin more, and then God's grace will give it. And he said, no, don't do that. You've, 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 you've missed the point on this. Should we sin more so that grace could abound more? Absolutely not, Paul says. Jesus even called into question the religious rules that were trying to be followed. He, and you'll see this as we, as we go forward, but he raised the standard even higher than just the rules. Because he gets to the heart of it. And there's a, this is a different sermon for a different day, but there's a distinction between cultural law and life law. I hope you understand that. There were in the 630, there were, there were cultural laws where, you know, they couldn't, you know, the Jewish people, they, you know, the men couldn't cut the ringlets on their hair, and there were certain cultural laws, and I don't see any ringlets around here, so you guys have all blown it as far as that's concerned. Lawbreakers, all of you, me, me included. And so there was, there's a distinction between cultural law, that's why Galatians 5, you know, talks about that we are free from the law, we are free from cultural law, because even Paul, when he, was, when he had ministered to the Galatians, there were some Jews in the time that were trying to get the Galatians to, to adhere to the old law, cultural law. And he said, no, you, he even said, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? you? You don't have to follow that. You are free in Christ, he says in Galatians 5. But that doesn't mean that life law is gone. And in fact, Jesus, you will see that he begins to deal with, with life law, and he raises the standard of life law. Because we all know that if you just try to follow the rules, you're going to try to find a way to get around the rules. That's the human condition. Remember when we were kids? Remember your kids? When you have rules in place? My dad always thought that I could be a lawyer. He said, I think you missed your calling. Because I could somehow get away and finagle around the rule and say, well, you know, you didn't, you didn't exactly say this. Have you ever been there? Parents are giggling right now. They hear it. Or if you've been guilty yourself. Well, this is the rule. Well, you didn't exactly say this. So that's my way around the rule. That's what happens in the human condition when you just try to be a rule follower. And so this is what was going on, and it's not just kids. Jesus was dealing with the religious of the day, saying, you know, you guys have just tried to adhere to rule following, but now it's even gotten to the point where it, it, you are trying to wiggle around. You're trying to find a loophole through the rule to, to, to basically say, technically, I'm not breaking the law. And you will see that. Life law, and Jesus raises the standard. So he, we're going to look at that. Again, the key verse, verse 20. You can go back to that. Yeah, Key verse 20, and he says, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. This is a powerful, powerful statement. I want you to get a hold of what Jesus is saying. 
Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Just let that sink in. I mean, there's a lot of weight to that. Strong, strong words from Jesus. Because the righteousness of the Pharisees was rule-following, dead religion. It was outward conformity instead of inward transformation. That's why later on, you know, Jesus was, was preaching about the heart. The Sermon on the Mount is about the heart, the condition of the heart, the motives of the heart. Paul took that even farther, and he was talking about that if you really want to be transformed, transformation begins on the inside of you. But that religious righteousness is outward conformity instead of inward transformation. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says this, and he is rebuking the Pharisees. Read that sometime. And he says this to them. He said, you know, you guys clean the outside of the cup and dish, and the inside is filthy. And he's trying to paint a picture there of, can you imagine doing the dishes? You know, and you have this bowl that's got stuff in it, and it's all kind of yucky, and you take it, and you just scrub the outside of the bowl. And then you hand it to the person that's next to you. You know, they're going to rinse and dry and do the thing. And, they're, you know, this is not even clean. Well, but I clean the outside. And that's what Jesus said to the religious. He said, you guys are working really, really hard to clean the outside of the cup because you want to look the part. You want to look religious. You want to be honored in front of people. You like the idea of religion. But inside, you are filled with all kinds of greed. And he said, greed and self-indulgence. It's all about you. In fact, he says this, gentle, lowly Jesus. He says, you go out of your way to make a convert, but then you turn them into twice the sons of hell as yourself. Wow. Is that uh, the picture of Jesus that you have? You know, we have him sitting around being, you know, more lamb-like than lion-like. This is a lion passage. Because he says what you're doing is, is you, are, you are converting them. You are making converts to outward conformity. You are teaching them how to look the part but not really be inwardly transformed. That's from Matthew 23. Religious righteousness. And so then the rest of the chapter, chapter 5, the rest of the chapter, Jesus gives the contrast and, call, and a call to true righteousness. And we're going, to kind of, we're going to kind of hit on these, these life laws that Jesus kind of touch in, touches in on. But religious righteousness puts an outward act and tries to follow the rules, all the while trying to find loopholes. Jesus gives true righteousness. That's why he says, and you hear him say over and over, he says, you know, you have heard it said, don't do this, but I say to you, do this. And so he deals with them. Over and over, he raised the standard. He says, what are your motives? Why are you following the rules? Where's your heart? Beginning with verse 21, Jesus talks about anger. Because see, a Pharisee would never dream of stabbing someone or shooting someone with a gun or, or taking someone's life. There's a rule against that. They wouldn't do that. But they would still be happy to destroy a person's dignity with their words. You see, they find a loophole. Well, I didn't break the law, 
But what about with your mouth? What about with your tongue? And James says, James 3 says, the, the tongue is filled with all kinds of deadly poison. It has the power to give life or to give death. And so we can speak with our words and we can be angry with our words. Well, you know, the Pharisee, the religious rule says, well, I didn't break the law. I didn't kill anyone. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but what about what you say? Because the word has a lot to say about anger and hatred and the tongue. Even Jesus says, when you say to someone, raka, which is a, it's a term of contempt. You, you, you challenge somebody's character and you hold them in contempt. And he warns about that. Then he says, if you say to someone, you fool, and it's more than just the word fool. If you look at the word there, it's a, it is actually a word of condemnation and judgment. It's, a, it's basically speaking a curse over someone. And sometimes we can do that in the matter of, in the church or we can pray against someone. We've got to be very careful how we use our tongue. Because it's a, yeah, it was against the law to kill someone, but Jesus was saying, what about what's in your heart? What about the hatred and the anger that you deal with? What about the way you use your words? And that's why he's saying our righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees. Verse 27, Jesus talks about adultery. The Pharisees, these guys, would, they, they, they wouldn't have an affair. A guy, you know, there's rules against that stuff. But they would not think twice about maybe looking at a woman with lust. And that's why Jesus says this. You've heard it said. The law, the rules say don't commit adultery. But here's what I'm saying. If you look at a woman with lust, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. Again, he gets back to the heart. So these guys were technical rule keepers. Well, I did not have an affair. I did not have some sort of sexual sin, but I'm looking online at pornography. I'm drifting off in secret sin, and technically I'm, I'm not doing what the law says not to do. But where's my heart? Because those things that are done in secret, the things that are done in darkness, Jesus said one day they will come to the light. That's why Paul, later on, he deals with the whole idea of what he says, sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. You know, Jesus said, where's your heart? Paul said, flee sexual immorality. And the whole definition of sexual immorality is anything sexual that is outside the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman. That's the biblical definition of sexual immorality. You can look that, look that up. Where's our hearts? And then he follows it up in verses 29 through 30. You know, he says, if your right eye offends you, gouge it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. And he's not saying, you know, harm yourself, but he's saying be drastic with your sin. Cut the source off. Cut the lifeline to the sin off. Be drastic with it. That's why he's saying repent of your sins. Jesus came at the beginning, right before the, right before the Sermon on the Mount. It says Jesus began to preach this. Repent of your sins and turn to God. Because you're going to find life in God. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to be drastic with your sin. Don't treat it with, ah, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. Why is it a big deal? Because Jesus loves us so intensely and he has a plan for our lives that he doesn't want our sin to interfere with his plan. 
Because a lot of times if we're just rule keepers, we think of him just being the, you know, the keeper of the rules and he has the rule book and he's following us around. He's waiting for any second that we step off that we can whack us back into. No, we got to look at the rules out of love and I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. But be drastic with your sin. Cut the lifeline off. Do whatever it takes. And ultimately embrace his discipline because he loves us. And it goes back to the Sermon on the Mount where he says, Blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. He wants us to mourn our sin and to run, run to him that, that he then comforts us. Verse 31, Jesus talks about kind of adultery again in a different way. Again, these guys weren't about to cheat on their spouses by sleeping with someone else. That, that there's, that's clearly breaking one of God's rules. But they would use divorce to satisfy their lustful desire to marry someone else. If they became physically attracted to someone else, they maybe were quick to find a reason to divorce their spouse and get remarried so that they could start sleeping with a new lover. And maybe say, technically, you can do that to avoid committing adultery. And that's why Jesus is dealing with the heart of the matter of why we do what we do. He, he prefaces all of this by saying our, our righteousness must surpass that of the, the Pharisees and the religious you know, the, the teachers of religious law. And so he's giving us, and these guys would find loopholes. Well, technically, I'm not doing this, or, you know, technically, I'm not doing that. In our, in our day and age is, is they have this, uh, they, they, they have this, this word or, or, you know, a phrase that's used, I'm a, I'm a technical virgin. Among young people, it says, well, I didn't actually do the act, but we, you know, we did everything else. But, and, and, and that's why Paul says sex, the whole idea of fleeing sexual immorality. Jesus is getting to the heart of who we are because he knows everything that we do. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. And he has come to set us free because he loves us. Verse 38, Jesus talks about retaliation. The Pharisees would never pay back evil done to them with a greater evil, but they'd be more than happy to find a way to exactly get even. After all, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, that's the law. And so they would, they would say, I'm not going to get more than you, but I am going to get even with you. Listen to how Jesus says that we must combat that. 43, verse 43, you've heard that it was said, and he's given the law, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you might be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than any other? Do not even the pagans do that? And then he ends this, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Boy, that's the standard. Jesus said, I don't want you to try to adhere to 613 Jewish laws. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I want you to be perfect like God. And, and, and naturally, the answer to that question or the answer to that proposal is there's no way we can be without Christ. We cannot be holy without him. We cannot be righteous without him. The Pharisees knew the rules, but they did not know God. In their attempt to be perfect by the letter of the law, they, they cared little for greater principles that stood behind the rules. Jesus said this in Matthew 23. He said, these guys, they would, he said, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. 
And that's kind of almost even a, a funny idea where you're looking so hard at the rules and you're trying to strain out a little gnat and then you swallow a camel instead. And Jesus obviously says, do not be like them. So I'm going to close with this, three ways to walk in true righteousness. Three ways to walk in true righteousness. Some passages that I'll read. Number one is receive it from God. He is our righteousness. One of the names of God is Jehovah Sidkenu, which means the Lord, our righteousness. He is our righteousness. Again, you want to be more like him, you need to be with him. Romans 3, 21 through 22 says this, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. Listen to this promise. A righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's found in Jesus. Philippians 3, 8, Paul says this, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And I love Titus 3, 4, and 5. Listen to how he begins this statement, Paul, to Titus. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Listen to this. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. God's kindness comes and he saves us not because of our righteousness, but because he is righteous. He does not love us because we are good. He loves us because he is good. Scripture calls our righteousness filthy rags. Kind of a, a nice way of saying dirty used toilet paper. Let that sink in for a minute. Yuck. But that's how much our righteousness is worth in our own. When Jesus comes into our lives, God gives us his righteousness. That's why that whole idea of, of the, the beginning of the, of the Beatitudes is blessed are the poor in spirit. When you realize how deeply you need Jesus every day, that's what helps you become righteous. And that's why Jesus went to the cross for us out of love. He, being perfect, died for us who are imperfect. Romans 8, 3 and 4 tells us that God sent Jesus to die for us, that in him the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us because of the righteousness of Christ. But the, great, this, this, the righteousness is the righteousness of the heart, and it's only possible to those who belong to Jesus who are born again. We can't clear the bar. We can't meet the standard until we realize our dependence on Jesus to accept him, to make him Lord, to make him center to our life. That's what I began this, this sermon out with is, is who is at the center, that center place of your life. If, it, if it's anything but Christ, you're going you're, you're gonna to be constantly trying to figure out how to keep the rules but it's completely surrendering to him and his sacrifice for us. Number two is this. So the first one is, is receive it from him. Number two is step out of the spotlight. We can't be looking around for approval, recognition from others of how righteous we are. A lot of times we're trying to prove to people how righteous we are. 
That's why Jesus begins Matthew 6, 1. In the Sermon on the Mount, he goes talking about all of this stuff. Matthew 6, 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And so Jesus is saying, why are you doing what you're doing? If it's not out of a place of loving God, loving Jesus, you need to check your motives. When we follow the rules, when we are living a godly life, it's not for us to be elevated, but it's for Jesus to be exalted. It's for Jesus to be glorified in and through us. That's why he says, let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds or the righteousness of Christ in you and then give praise to your Father in heaven. That's what it boils down to. You want people to see God's work in you, so then they praise God. They go, man, I know you. I know your past. And then we can say, yeah, I know what I'm capable of. But it's only through the righteousness of Christ. It's only through the intimacy with Jesus that I can walk this way. And all glory belongs to him. And then thirdly is this, become a lover of God rather than a keeper of rules. This, again, is motivation why we do what we do. Do good, yes, but let it be because you love Jesus so much. And, folks, this is, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to operate in this way. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus. The Pharisees were keepers of rules more than they were lovers of God. In fact, here they are. They have all the prophecies. These guys, they knew the law backward and forward. In fact, to be a Pharisee, they had to memorize the entire law. All of it. Word for word, they had to know it. And if that weren't enough, they had the prophecies of the great prophets of old, their, their forefathers, of the prophecies that Isaiah gave of the coming Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies. And here they are. They have the Messiah in their midst. They have the, the, the Messiah was who they were waiting for. They were waiting for the promised Messiah. Jesus shows up, and they miss him entirely. He's right there in their midst because they were more following the rules than being inwardly transformed. And you notice what the following of the rules caused them to do, to just be rule followers and trying to adhere to the law. What did it do for them? Number one, they missed Jesus. Number two, it made them bitter. Number three, it made them angry. And they ultimately are the ones that cried out for the crucifixion and the death penalty of Jesus. God help us. God have mercy that when we are so legalistic and we are so bent on rule following that we miss Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. And we can cry out for, 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 for cry out against something that is a move of God, a true move of God. Because it's not happening the way we thought it should happen. But when we truly love him, we'll be more interested in pleasing him rather than just externally giving attention to his rules. But we do keep his rules because we love him. We live righteously because of his work in us. And you see Jesus' grief with them where he would heal on the Sabbath. 
and they would condemn him for working on the Sabbath. And he was touching people that were so desperately in need. And he healed the man's hand. And then they were trying to find a way to arrest him because he, quote, unquote, he was breaking the rule of working on the Sabbath. And Jesus, you can just see him. You guys, what are you doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? You've missed the heart of this whole thing. So I want to conclude by saying this. Which kind of righteousness do you want? Have you just tried to be a rule follower? Trying to be better? When somebody says, how you doing? Well, it could be better. I could be getting better. i trying to do better. Are you praying? Are you reading the word because you have to, because you ought to? That's the Christian thing to do. I want you to see the love of Jesus today in a new way. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he raised life lost standards to a place, and he says, you'll never attain it without me. You'll never get there. I'm going to raise it so high that the only way you're going to get there is you're going to go through the doorway of me. And so Jesus in this gives us himself over and over. And he's saying you desperately need me. You need to understand that it is a place of intimacy and relationship and love is the only way that you're going to understand it. The only way you're going to walk in righteousness is to understand a place of love, of why you do. You're going to read your Bible because you're so in love with me. You're going to pray because you love me, not because you ought to. Now, with that said, it goes beyond our feelings. If you're waiting for your feelings sometimes to be engaged, sometimes we feel it, sometimes we don't. Sometimes it does feel like a little harder work than others. But we do it because we love him. What kind of righteousness do you want? I want true righteousness that comes from Jesus. And what he's saying today is if, if you want this, come to me. Repent where you need to repent. Turn from your sin where you need to turn from your sin. Receive my love. Then love me back out of that place of love. Live for me. Surrender your life to me, and then you can walk in holiness and righteousness and be who I've called you to be. That's the kind of righteousness that I want. Let's pray. Lord, today we ask that you would examine our hearts. Lord, through that whole part of your sermon, Lord, you really were boiling it down to saying, where's your heart? What's the condition of your heart today? Not trying to follow the rules better, but what's the condition of your heart? If you're trying to follow the rules, it was said this, but let me say this. Let me raise it higher because you're never going to get there. You need to come to me. So my question is, even as Jesus spoke this stuff, and he's saying, where's your heart? I'm asking you, where's your heart today? What's the condition of your heart today? Does Christianity, does following Christ, when you hear that, does it, does it just kind of conjure up following rules, traditions, maybe things that you grew up with, little hoops that we have to jump through? Or does it... Does it make you think of loving him more because that's what, the way he wants it. And the enemy will fight that idea in your life day after day after day. 
And I said this before, but most people are bitter when they're bitter at the church, when they're bitter at Christianity. I, I, I just, I don't think so much it's about Jesus. It's about they've been burnt, they've been hurt, they've been, they, they got tired of trying to follow the rules and trying to be better, and, and they've missed the point. We need a new, fresh revelation of Jesus Christ and who he is and why he came. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would test our hearts. Lord, we want to love you more. We want to receive your love today. How great is the love of God. That as we look at your kindness, as Paul told Titus, we consider the kindness of God, and we consider that we're saved not by our own righteousness, but because of his mercy and his love. Jesus went to the cross Do not forget this. Jesus went to the cross because he loves you that much. That's the extent of his love, that he was willing to give his life for you and me. Lord, we receive your love. Today, I encourage you, if you need to receive his love, if you need to, whatever you need to do to get right, and if you need to just talk to him and do that before the Lord. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me for being trying to be more religious. Forgive me for just being traditional. So, Father, we ask that you would touch our hearts. Purify us, Lord. And help us this week, Lord, more than ever. I, I pray that we would walk in the love of God like we've never walked in the love of God before. Lord, we honor you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you today. I hope you have an awesome day and an awesome week. And receive the love of God. Walk in the love of God. and. Thanks for coming.